A few years ago, I had to go into hospital for a procedure. I'll spare you the gory details. Uh, but in part, uh, I had to have a, a, an endoscopy, a camera, put down my throat. Um, and uh, as I lay on the hospital bed, uh, the doctor said to me, or the surgeon said to me, um, we've got a screen next to the bed. Would you like to see what's going on? Uh, to which I said, like I think any normal person, not at all. I have no, no interest whatsoever in seeing that the contents of my stomach and intestines or whatever else they were poking around. I imagine they're pretty disgusting, possibly a bit scary. I, frankly, I just don't want to know. Uh, imagine this morning, instead of a camera uh, down the throat, uh, some whizzy scientist uh, came up with a special camera that they could attach to your head. And actually, instead of showing the contents of your stomach, it showed the contents of your mind. It could show not just everything you're thinking now, but also could show everything you ever have thought, everything you've ever thought about your colleagues at work, your housemates, your family, about people in this room. And imagine that this procedure wasn't happening in the, the confines of a, of a hospital room, just between you and the consultant, but it was being plugged into the projector there and, and beamed up onto the screen. How long would you stay in the room? About one and a half seconds? Uh, today, Jesus uh, wants us to, to, to be brave and look at our hearts. He, he wants to do that kind of procedure on us, show us what's on the inside. But he's not cruel. He's not going to broadcast everything uh, to those around us. He's not trying to humiliate us. I wonder, particularly if you're, if you're new to, to church things, when you uh, read verses like verse 19, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sex, immorality, theft, you think, well, here we go again. That's what I expected from, from religious types. I kind of beat up. Look at all the things you do wrong. But that's not quite what Jesus is doing here. Interestingly, the people he's arguing with are, are the Guys, you think they're sort of super pure and holy. Uh, the people he's debating, the people he's angry with, we might say, are not those who were staggering around Leeds city centre last night, drunk, looking for someone to hook up with uh, as I walked home from the train. But the people he's debating with and annoyed with are those who are sat in church this morning, well-dressed, well-put-together, with life seemingly all sorted. He wants us to see our hearts and be ruthlessly honest about them. Because only when we see properly and clearly what's on the inside can we deal with a problem. I didn't go for the, the camera test for fun. Okay, it wasn't a birthday treat. It was because the, the doctors thought there might be something wrong on the inside. They were looking in order to then sort things out. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And really, I, I, there's, there's two questions we've got to answer, two questions that, that Jesus poses to us through this passage. The first is this, is the problem outside us or inside us? It's that simple, children. Is the problem outside us or inside us? As our passage began, these Pharisees, verse 1, and scribes, they're the guys who write scripture, they come to Jesus, they've come all the way from Jerusalem. Jesus isn't in Jerusalem, Jerusalem's the capital city of the nation they live in. But Jesus is not there yet. He's up north and they've come all the way. They're pretty perturbed. And what are they annoyed about? 
Well, verse 2, they're annoyed about the disciples. Why are your disciples breaking the tradition of the elders and not washing their hands when they eat? Now, this isn't, this isn't the, the, the disciples, sorry, the Pharisees coming on a kind of hygiene mission. Okay, they're, not, they're not worried about germs. I had a friend at university who was training to be a nurse, uh, and, and one of the exams she had to take was, was a hand-washing exam. You had to learn how to wash your hands. You still have to do that? Yeah, wash it the right way and do this and that. And she was very embarrassed when she failed it. Imagine that, failing an exam to wash your hands. Um, that's not their concern. Uh, their concern is, is sort of ceremonial. Uh, they had practices, and importantly, these aren't practices that are in the Bible. These are things they made up. That's why they're called the traditions of the elders in verse 2. They had practices where they thought that, that before you ever eat, you, you had to bathe as much of your body as possible. They'd, pour, they'd hold their hands up and pour water so that the dirt sort of ran off symbolically downwards and then do it the other way. Uh, they'd wash pots and pans. And again, nothing to do with hygiene, but, but to ceremonially say, look, we are now clean before you, God, and can eat in your presence. Uh, for the Pharisees, in other words, that the problem was outside of us. Dirt and defilement comes from the outside in. It is a problem out there. Uh, this is perhaps even clearer Uh, In our passage, verse 11 and 12, uh, Jesus calls the people to himself and says, look, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles us, makes us unclean, but what comes out, this defiles a person. And the disciples come to us and say, don't you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? They're offended because they disagree. The Pharisees think that what you put in yourself makes you unclean. And we shake our heads and scratch our heads and think, what are they on? And it's bizarre. How could you make yourself spiritually unclean just because of what you ate or what you touched? It's not such a strange concept to many people in the world. If we were to go down the road to the mosque, we'd see all sorts of ceremonial washings before worship. Same at the synagogue. So it's not completely alien in our own day, but it's perhaps alien to most of us in our kind of westernised culture, if indeed that's where... Uh, we do find our cultural heritage. But it's not that far away from how we think. When we do things wrong, when we catch ourselves, uh, whether it's actions or thoughts, how quick are we to blame the outside world rather than ourselves? Uh, Jesus, yes, uh, I was lusting the other day but do you know how freely available pornography is nowadays it's on the computer it's on the phones it's on the tv how can you expect me not to sin with all that around me jesus do you know how cheap alcohol is in the uni bar do you know how much pressure there is to join in the kind of heavy drinking culture how can i stand against that i was led into it by my friends. Jesus, do you know how little interest my, my husband shows in me? How spiritually dead he seems to be? How little interest he has in leading our marriage and our family? Is it any wonder that I spend so much time thinking about that, that other guy? Children, when you get in trouble, perhaps you've lost your temper, had a fight, and mum or dad turn up and say, what's going on? How often do you say, well, it was my brother, it was my sister who started it. It certainly happened when I was little. 
It was always my sister's fault. Elizabeth, mum, Elizabeth made me do it. We always want to blame a problem on the outside. And in that way, we're, we're heirs of the Pharisees. The problem is out there, not inside. But Jesus won't have any of it. For Jesus, the problem is on the inside, within us. Verse 17 again. Oh, sorry, verse 18. It's what comes out of the mouth that proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. Our heart is... Jesus is using the word heart there. In, in some ways, like, like we do when we talk about following our heart, he's not talking about the, the physical organ that pumps blood around your body. He's talking about our thoughts, the, the kind of you on the inside, if you like. And he's concerned, well, verse 19, with those thoughts. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Jesus has never been just about outer actions. If you were here a few weeks ago, quite a few weeks ago now, probably months, uh, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, look, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, even getting angry is like committing murder in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but even lusting after someone is like committing adultery in your heart. Jesus is always concerned about the inside as well as the outside, not just our actions, but but what's going on on, in the inside. And uh, uh, in verse 19 and 20, he, he essentially rattles through the, 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 the last half of the Ten Commandments. These evil thoughts are like murder. Well, that's the Sixth Commandment. Adultery and sexual morality, that's the Seventh Commandment. Theft, that's the Eighth Commandment. False witness, slander, that's the Ninth Commandment. You, you, might, you might never have killed anyone, pulled out a knife and stabbed them. You might never have left your wife or husband and run off with another man or woman. Uh, you might never have walked into a shop and slipped a few things quietly into the bag when no one was looking. But in your heart, says Jesus. Well, that's what we're like. In fact, he uses a pretty grim metaphor. It's one that the ESV kind of tidies up, really. The ESV is the version of the Bible uh, we've got today. Uh, look with me at verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Now, you see a little footnote there, little number four. And it'll say at the bottom of the page, Greek is expelled into the latrine. Latrine's an old-fashioned word for a toilet. Now, I, I don't know why they left it out. I don't know why they put it in a footnote. It's just there. At least they're honest. In the Greek, the language of the New Testament, it's there. Jesus says, what goes into our mouth, this is what happens, children, isn't it? When you eat something, where does it go? Into your tummy. And where does it go there? Well, it goes into the loo, doesn't it? And it's gross. You, you don't want to play in a toilet, do you? But do you see the comparison Jesus makes? He goes on from saying, look, stuff that goes into you goes out of you, but that's not what makes you unclean. What makes you unclean is your heart. In other words, your heart is far filthier than the contents of your toilet. You can see why the, the translators get a bit nervous, want to sort of tidy it up. I grew up in the countryside. Uh, back in the 80s, and there weren't great systems. And uh, in our back garden, uh, we, we used to have there was a little sort of circle uh, on the ground, um, stone cover, and it was a, it was a, it was a tank where everything from the house that went down the toilet got pushed into this tank, and every now and again it would get blocked, and you'd have to take the lid off and poke at it. It was disgusting, absolutely disgusting. And that's what Jesus compares our hearts to, like dung. For Jesus, it's not stuff outside us that causes us to sin. And we are sort of good, innocent victims, just led astray occasionally in a moment of weakness. It's our hearts that that take us astray. 
So as you look at your own heart, what do you see? Verse 19. Where does he start? Murder. Well, I imagine you may not have ever imagined actually murdering anyone, but the hatred we feel to them at times. Some of us, our hearts are like, they're sort of stacked with gunpowder. And it, it just takes one little spark and bang, they go off, exploding in anger. Frustration is built up. And completely unreasonably, we, we lash out against someone who's annoyed us or let us down. Or, and, and our anger is completely disproportionate to what they've done. Because we've got a gunpowder heart. Well, it's not murder. What about the next commandment? The seventh commandment, adultery, sexual morality. If we were to plug that projector into our minds and replay the last 20 years, 30 years, whatever it might be, how many women have we slept with? In how many other men's arms have we lain that aren't our spouse? How many times have we run away, eloped in our imagination with someone else? Once, twice, ten times, a hundred times? None of us want to say, do we? But Jesus knows, as someone has said, and has been quoted many, many times, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The problem is within us, not outside us. Well, let me ask you a question. I want to think about. Do we become sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we're sinners? It's like a riddle, isn't it? Let me ask that again. Do we become sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? For the Pharisees, we occasionally sin. They didn't deny there was sin, wrongdoing. We sin, and therefore we become a sinner. It's not really our fault. It's not who we are. We're basically good people who are occasionally led astray by the dirt out there in the world. Society. The Pharisees would be those who'd be, be walking around town last night in horror. Look at these people. And looking down their noses, but not Jesus. See how easy, by the way, particularly if you're you're new to church things, see how easy it would be to confuse Jesus with religion. Jesus is gracious and kind with the prostitutes of his day, the tax collectors, the thieves. He's much harsher on the kind of religious snobs like the Pharisees. For Jesus, though, we are sinners. It's, It's in our nature. Sin comes from within. It's not an accidental thing we stumble into. If that if that's too much of a riddle, let me ask another one. Uh, there's a lot of complaint about nowadays, complaint nowadays isn't there, about social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all these sort of things. Has social media made us meaner? Or actually, has social media just revealed the meanness that was always there? Okay, that's the same question. Well, it's the latter, isn't it? It doesn't make us meaner. It might give us more opportunities to express that meanness. But, but, but your phone, okay, with Facebook on it, the app doesn't make you write mean stuff. It doesn't make you envy when you look at what your friend has and you don't. It doesn't make you write the snide comments to take someone down. Now, that all comes from within. And social media just yet another opportunity to let it out. Well, a fascinating parallel, I think. Even in the, a very modern movement, the transgender movement, what is the basic uh, narrative story we're being told? Well, we're being told nowadays, it's so modern, isn't it? The last three, four years? Uh, we're being told that it's possible that you could be a man but born in a woman's body. Or a woman born in a man's body. 
And you see, the same thing is happening. It's that same Pharisee error. They're saying the problem is on the outside, not the inside. The inside, the real me, is a woman. The problem is on the outside, the body, the shell I've been given, which is a man. Therefore, I need to change the outside, the shell, the body, and, and try and make it female, if that was possible, to match the true inside. There's an article in, in yesterday's paper, uh, a woman called Charlie. He went through this process. She, she's a woman, and she transitioned to become a man, and then she's regretted it, and she's transitioned back. And she said this, it's, it dawned on me that, and here's the quote, you can't be born in the wrong body. It's our minds that need treatment, not our sex, not our body. It's not Christian, it's not a religious person, as far as I know. But it's a, she was told when she went to the doctors, well, if you feel like a man, it's your body, the outer, that needs changing. And it dawned on her eventually that, no, just her mindset needed to change. It make it easy. The dawning came to her instantly when she, she went to Ghana and was insisting to all these baffled Ghanaians that although she looked like a woman and had a body of a woman, she, she was actually a man on the inside. And she said that just, their complete incredulity made her realise it was such a first world problem, to quote her again. And yet it's common, isn't it? 4,400% increase in the last 10 years for girls transitioning to be boys. 4,400% increase in the last 10 years. Leeds is the third highest university in England for transitioning, for students wanting to transition after Oxford and Warwick, if you're wondering. We buy into this, this myth that actually the heart is okay and we need to make reality fit around it. Follow your heart, society says, and everything will be okay. But deep down we know that's not quite right, do we? Do you remember Woody Allen, the, the film director? Uh, he slept with his second wife's 19-year-old adopted daughter. And when asked to justify it, he said, the heart wants what it wants. Does that make it okay? Oh, fine. You know, if, you, would it be, if your heart wants to sleep with your wife's adopted daughter as a teenager, well, if your heart wants it, that, that's okay. Well, we instinctively said no. And yet still we sing the same tune follow your heart no it's deadly says Jesus don't follow your heart so look at yourself honestly it is the problem on the inside or the outside Jesus says look look inside and 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 see the problem is there but secondly is the solution inside or outside is a solution inside or outside for, for the Pharisees remember that the problem was on the outside and for them the solution is on the inside I can sort myself out. How they do it with those washings again in verse 2. If I just pour water on my... Then that'll cleanse me. They convince themselves that they're, they're righteous. They don't need forgiveness. They don't need their heart sorting out. There's nothing wrong with them. But how do they do this? Well, it's Jesus. They do it by avoiding God's word and replacing God's word, God's... That law which convicts us of sin, exposes our heart, that they push that aside so that the, that the microscope can't show what's on the inside, and instead create some human traditions. Uh, the example here is, is, is honouring their parents. Uh, verse 3, Jesus says to the Pharisees, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? God said, honour your father and mother. Okay, that is in the Bible. But you Pharisees have got round it. You say, verse 5, if anyone tells his father and mother, what you would have got from me has been dedicated to God, then you 
you're scot-free out of the commandments. He's talking about a tradition that the Pharisees invented called Corban. You can read about, more about it in Mark's Gospel in chapter 7. And for the Pharisees, look, you, you're at home and you, you see children, maybe mum and dad when you're older. Okay? Mum and dad, you, you've, you've got lots of money now. Okay, done really well, got lots of money, a nice house. And mum and dad have run out of money. And you see them walking up the path to your house. And you know dad is going to ask for some of your money. Okay? So what do you do? Well, the Pharisees created this tradition called Corban. You quickly, you see him come, you say, look, Corban, everything is Corban. And then when dad knocks on the door and opens the door and says, oh, please, look, I haven't got any food, I haven't got any money. Can, can you please give me some, lend me some? He said, look, I'd love to. I would have loved to. But I can't, dad, because it's all dedicated to God. It all belongs to God, it's not mine. Can't, can't give it you. And for the Pharisees, that was a righteous thing to do. Jesus says, no, you just invented that to get out of real love, real obligations, real care. That's why he calls them hypocrites in verse 7. Don't pretend to be all righteous and high and mighty when you're just obeying man-made rules. You're not actually obeying God at all. Verse 8, you're you're honouring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. These Pharisees are in church, as it were. They're in the synagogue. They're worshipping, singing the songs, saying the prayers, going through the motion. But they're not. They're not interested in the heart. The heart is dead. We might think that, that these Pharisees, we sometimes call them legalists. People, you know, they're making extra laws. We sometimes, I wonder if we think about the Pharisees as those who are sort of extra holy. But Jesus says the opposite. He says they're less holy than they ought to be. They make the extra rules, Corban and various other things, about how many steps you can take on the Sabbath and all sorts of things. They make these extra rules not to raise the standard, but to lower it. Because it's much easier to keep the Corban rule, for example, than it is to genuinely love your mother and father. Give yourself sacrificially for them. Give some of your money. Creating the extra rules, becoming a legalist, is actually lowering the bar so that they think, well, I can do it. I can't keep God's law, but I can keep these man-made laws. And they convince themselves they're righteous. Those are the two signs, sorry, three signs of a Pharisee. They trust their own religious ceremonies, these washings. They keep their own man-made rules. And they avoid God's word. Avoid the x-ray that shines a light into its hearts. Our hearts, sorry. There was a minister in America, in Philadelphia, about 50 years ago, called Donald Barnhouse. And he said one morning to his congregation, huge congregation, um, Bible-honoring congregation, good, good congregation. He said, look, what would happen... If, if Satan took over Philadelphia, what would it be like? Children, if, if, if Satan took over Leeds, okay, what would it look like? And you can imagine people's minds wearing away, or be violence on the streets and burglaries every night. And they said, no. Satan took over Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a sort of nice city. If Satan took over Philadelphia, it'd be like this. Uh, the children would be polite, the streets would be tidy. Everyone would call each other ma'am and sir. The church would be full every Sunday morning. And everyone would believe they don't need Jesus. Everyone believed their hearts are okay. That's not what the devil wants. He doesn't care if you're a, you know, an axe murderer or, or a stuck-up Pharisee. As long as you don't go to Jesus, that'll do for him. For, for most, I don't know all of you, but for most of us, that's far more likely to be our danger. 
that, 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 that we don't feel we desperately need Jesus, we need forgiveness, we need our hearts sorting out because actually we're okay. Very few of us are going to become, end up in high security prisons, I suspect. I mean, that's bad too, obviously. Most of us are more in danger of thinking our hearts are okay. We become hypocrites. Remember that cesspit in my parents' back garden, children, the, the horrible uh, pit of all the stuff that had been flushed down the toilet. Well, you don't deal with the issue just by putting a kind of nice fresh covering of snow over it. Okay, snow on a dunghill doesn't get rid of the dunghill. But that's what the Pharisees are doing. That's why they're blind guides leading others into the pit. They're so dangerous to listen to. The Pharisees say the answer is in yourself. You can sort yourself. Try harder, pray more, go to, and you will be okay. No, says Jesus. For Jesus, our hearts are too corrupt. They stink too much. They're too scary to look at. And so what's Jesus' answer? Well, Jesus' answer isn't just clean up your heart. Jesus' answer fundamentally is you've got to give up. Again, if you're new to Christian things, this might be a surprise. Jesus' answer is not be a better person. It's give up. Your heart is too corrupt. You can't, you can't do enough good things to balance out the bad. Give up. But the good news is that God has given us two gifts. God the Father has given us two gifts. He's given us his son. Jesus alone had a pure heart. There was no spot of sin or uncleanness on him. If you looked in his mind, never were his thoughts anything but pure and shining and bright. Even under the harshest pressure, he never wavered. And so the first thing we need to do, if our hearts aren't going to shut us out of heaven, is look away from our hearts to him. It sounds so easy, but it's very hard to do. It's very hard to, to give up on our own righteousness, our own goodness, and genuinely say, okay, Jesus is going to be my saviour. I will look to his righteousness, his goodness, instead of my own heart. Even if we're Christians, we, we struggle with this. We, we, we've believed, and, but we, we can't stop looking at our hearts. We keep up. Honestly, if you knew what I'd thought this week, if you know what I'd imagined, if I'd fancied about it, oh man, I I can't really be Christian. It can't be as simple as as trusting Jesus instead. But it is. A minister many centuries ago now uh, was talking about how confident or not he was as a Christian. He said this, every time I look at my heart, the dove of peace flies away i.e. the assurance that God loves me and I'm safe. Every time I look at my heart, it flies away. Because he saw the corruption. But every time I look away from my heart and look at Christ, the dove of peace returns. That's right. Your call is to look away from your sin and look to Christ alone. But secondly, the Father has given us the Holy Spirit given us his son and his spirit. And the spirit comes, if we read earlier on in Matthew's gospel, to come to, to baptize us, to purify us. And that work begins when you become a Christian, but it only just begins. It just begins. Your heart, if you're a Christian, is only half conquered, to use John Newton's phrase. There's still rebellion there. Sammy Rutherford, who was a great minister, again, back in the 17th century, he said to a woman, a lady met him on the door as he was going out, as they were going out after the service, and she was 
she was with her, her children. She said, she said, you know, Reverend Rutherford, your, your, your sermons just take me into heaven itself. You are the godliest man I know. How can I get a little bit of your holiness, your sanctity, your blessedness? And he stopped her and said, lady, if you could see the blackness of my heart, you would take your children and fly from here. Now you read Rutherford's letters and they are extraordinary full of Christ. He's a Christian. He wasn't saying I'm not saved. But our hearts are so corrupt. And ultimately they won't be fully transformed until we die or Christ returns. It doesn't mean we don't engage in the battle. But they're not going to be fully transformed until we get to heaven. And so that second gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is not the grounds. When I'm thinking, how can I be saved? It's not, oh, have I been transformed? No, no, I look to Christ for that. But then God has given me the Spirit. And so part of our, our Christian walk is constantly bringing our hearts to, to Christ and saying, look, through your Spirit, change me. One of the hymns we sing, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me of sin's guilt and power. When you're confident that the guilt is taken by Christ alone and is gone, you're not going to be condemned for everything that's in your heart. When you're confident that actually God has seen that tape, but has chosen to look at Christ's life instead of yours, well, then you can look at the reality and bring it to God and ask for his help. That is the Christian path. We look into our our hearts and and, say, Lord, please change this. We don't get utterly depressed by it because it's not going to condemn us. Christ will save us. But we do bring and plead that it is changed. The hymn we're going to sing later has the line, take away the love of sinning. That's our prayer. Take away the love of sinning. For Christ, the solution to the, the grime in your heart is not in you, but outside. It is in him and therefore it is safe and secure. Look to him and you'll have confidence that whatever dirt comes out from within, eternal joy and peace awaits. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these two gifts of your Son and your Spirit. Uh, We thank you so much that ultimately we don't have to stand before you with a record of the grime of our own hearts. So make us honest people. Prevent us from falling into the error of the Pharisees, looking down on others, thinking that it is the the world out there that is corrupting us. And might we humbly realise that the the, the corruption comes from within. And might that realisation drive us not to despair, but to Christ. To see his beauty and perfection is given for us. And might we therefore in confidence come before your throne. In confidence ask for that second gift of your spirit. And might he take away the love of sinning and transform our hearts to be like the heart of Christ. We ask this therefore in Jesus' name. Amen.